Welcome to livingpianos.com. Robert Estrin here with a show about what it's like to be a classical musician in the 21st century. And I'm so pleased to have violinist Andrea Cicalese, who I got the opportunity to hear in a private concert right on the lake, just a few blocks from here, with dear friend and sensational pianist Jolt Bogner. And uh, we've got Andrea here right now, and I want to welcome Andrea. Good to have you here. Thank you so much, Robert, for, for having me on your wonderful show. I am really flattered to be invited, and I'm really happy to share uh, some of my stories with you. Absolutely. So, you know, I was really astounded going to this concert, and I was already very, very taken with your playing, and not only the technical mastery, but the depth of your musicianship. And then at a certain point, my wife whispered in my ear that you were 17 years old, and I almost fell out of my seat. And then <laughs> later on, speaking with you, learning that you've only been playing the violin for nine years. <laughs> I thought, how is this possible? So tell me a little bit about your background and your training, and uh, let everybody know about, you know, you're from Italy, living in Germany, you're making your foray into the United States now. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so as you mentioned, I started playing the violin when I was seven, which was exactly when I moved from Italy to Germany. And so learning the violin, I mean, I learned violin before German, really. So <laughs> it was kind of a, a language for me uh, to learn in that moment. Uh, and it was in a moment in my life where I really needed this. Uh, since really we left family, friends, and everyone to to move to Germany, and the violin was me comforting myself. Basically, I started uh, lessons with Rudens Turku, um, also under guardians of Anna Chumachenko, who is uh, just an incredible teacher. Um, then I moved to Würzburg University of Music when I was thirteen. And uh, I studied with Herbig Zack there. And now I'm currently, since two years, teacher of Josef Rissin, uh, who I, I just couldn't be happier with. I, I think he's an absolute genius of music. And uh, he, he, he taught people like Daniel Zakovich, Sergei Kachatian, or Albrecht Borniga. So really amazing people. And I think I'm in the right place right now. And I don't really want to go. <laughs> so, so, so that's my musicianship uh, yeah. right now. Then we met in America, as you were saying. And that's because uh, I was invited to play a recital in Buffalo with uh, pianist Alexander Malatev, um, who, who, who is, as we all know, uh, incredible. <laughs> and, that must have been quite an experience for you. Absolutely. It was actually my, my dream to perform with him since many years. I vividly, and it sounds like a movie when I say it, but that's just what happened. I <laughs> remember um, sitting on, you know, on the couch with my father and, and I was showing him a video of Alexander and, and I, I said to him, you know, one day, can I, do you think I will play with this guy? Like it was, you know, like uh, he is four years older than me. So it was like a, a feeling of someone that I looked up to a lot. Uh, so someone still in my generation, but older. And 
And here I was two weeks ago, we played <laughs> in Buffalo. We played Beethoven first sonata, Schubert sonatina in D from Opus 34 and Greek third sonata. And then encores by Masny and Shostakovich. And it was just, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And Fabulous. I enjoyed it, it seems so wonderful. Now, a lot of people would imagine that in order to get on such a level of playing and artistry in such a short amount of time, that you would be spending all day, every day practicing. And that in talking to you, you reveal to me that you're practicing, you do uh, not as much as some people might think. Tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day -day generally is like. Of course, when you're preparing for a program, I imagine you're immersed in practicing and rehearsing and all of that. But how do you find balance with travel, practicing, learning re new repertoire, rehearsing, and all of that? What's that like? What's the life like? Well, uh, that's, that's basically, I think, what a healthy life of a musician nowadays should be, even, uh, what I'm trying to achieve. Because uh, you cannot, uh, in my opinion, you cannot practice seven hours a day um, without really any reason, and then you're only in this practice room. Like I can imagine, for example, now talking about your channel, a pianist uh, who is practicing, you know, is eight hours a day only in his practice room alone. And then suddenly, like in a Hollywood Hollywood movie, he gets discovered and then he goes on the stage and he's like the best uh, performer of all time. That can happen, sure. But I believe that to perform well, um, which is what I try to to do um you must have a life um you must have experiences you must see nature art literature uh, friends communication uh, love hate you know everything must be there in order to have something to say i believe because mm -hmm. if you're empty inside um then it's not really going to go well and after my 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 recitals usually it's it's some of the most lonely moments in my life because uh i play and i open my soul to the audience so i really give them part of me of my being in that very moment of my present being i give them part of it and then i go in the in the dressing room and and I'm empty because I have nothing more to say. And that's when you feel alive in a concert, to quote my friend Daniel Otsakovich, which he told me, when you feel alive in a concert, that's when a concert went well. And I believe that really part of it really is true. And, and that's what I try to do. Absolutely. And I always enjoy the after concert, getting together with friends and fans. It's always a joy. And kind of a relief because there is a certain amount of nerves. And that's a question for you. And by the way, I want to let everybody know that a little bit later, we're going to play an excerpt so you get to hear Andrea in performance. So stay, uh, stay tuned to this video because you're going to want to hear this music. But tell me about how you handle nerves. Do you get nervous? What, what's it like for you getting on stage when there are, you know, hundreds or even thousands of people in a hall? What, how do you, how do you cope with that? Well, I have to say that I'm very lucky because I don't really have big problems with being nervous. Uh, of course, what I call it is adrenaline. There's always adrenaline when 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 I play, when I 
when I do chamber music, when I perform as solist, I mean, there is always something there. Nevertheless, uh, my most nervousness actually comes in the preparation of the concert and not really in the concert because um, when I'm, you know, when I'm told, okay, you have to, uh, you're playing a recital, let's, let's take this, for example, in Buffalo, uh, which I played now with Alexander, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so we are very good friends, but still, this is, you know, this is an important guy <laughs> which I'm playing with. And, and obviously, like it should be, because nervousness is a shows responsibility. Mm -hmm. You want to do well. And that's that's why you become nervous. I mean, you feel, feel certain responsibility for the audience. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think that in my preparation, you know, I I prepare so hard and so well, uh, or I try uh, that at least I feel very confident about what I'm doing. And uh, when I got to rehearsals with Alexander, which we did, I think maximum two days of rehearsal for one and a half hour long program after all. Uh, so really not much time. Uh, we were already seeing that things were working really well. We were a good, good team. Uh, we were playing well together. And, and the atmosphere was wonderful because although he has this big career and he just came back from uh, performing in Concertgebo, Amsterdam, Salgebo, Paris, and uh, uh, Tanglewood Festival with Michael Tilson Thomas, he makes me feel like uh, just a colleague, I mean, and friend. And, and so we had a wonderful time. And when we got on stage, uh, I mean, we really, really just had fun. Um, together and also backstage. I mean, we, it was just a funny moment. We behave like little bro brother, big brother, basically it's our relationship uh, or, you know, who gets the last cookie type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so so I couldn't feel more comfortable. And generally in my performances, that's, that's, that's how I approach things, like as a game, but with responsibility, basically. Well, that's great that you put the nerves at the beginning instead of at the end, that was, as it should be, you know, and uh, I know there are different schools of thought as to how to approach performing. Uh, for example, at a concert uh, I attended of Ivo Pogorelic, sensational pianist, mm -hmm. the hall was completely black, so you couldn't see your hands in front of you, and he walked out on stage and without even looking at the audience, proceeded to play a brilliant performance. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, perhaps his way of coping with the audience is to pretend they're not there. <laughs> I may be misspeaking because I, I don't know this for a fact, but uh, what I like to do is, in a best case scenario, take that energy, that adrenaline you spoke of, and use it to inspire things that maybe you never thought of doing before. So I'm going to ask you, how much of your program uh, do you leave to the moment to spontaneity, and how much is really just worked out that you try to faithfully reproduce what you did in practice. So there is this violinist, Yasha Heifetz, which I'm about to quote, and he is the most legendary violinist of all time. When you practice, act like it's the last time you're playing. When you play the concert, don't give a damn. <laughs> what, what I mean to say with this is when I practice, I mean, uh, with my teacher and with, with I mean, with music, especially with Beethoven or Schubert talking about now my latest recital, 
it's all worked out really, really finely, like every phrase. I mean, there is history behind this music. There is a way, a way to play it. Of course, you have to be individual, but 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 I I I really program what I want to do, like as a total shape, you know, in phrases. Uh, nevertheless, when I go to the performance, I don't think about what I programmed to do. I just do it. And <laughs> when I just do it, certain things might be different. Or I think music generally, when you say this, this, this phrasing is good or bad, or this color is good or bad, that's not really possible. I think it depends on the context. So what came before and what did it feel right to do in this moment? For example, in, in the second movement of, of Schubert, which, which you heard me play, there is this unbelievable uh, slow and warm theme from the violin, which in every performance I play differently, really. Right. Uh, which which I, I, you can't really, you know, program this. And about Ivo Pogorelic, uh, my approach is very different. I, uh, but of course he is Ivo Pogorelic, so I might be the wrong one. <laughs> but, but my approach is to to feel the energy from the audience, and then to reflect it in an amplified version to them. Mm-hmm. And that's how I take my adrenaline and and give it to them, especially now in the yes. in the Greek sonata, for example. If I take from this last program, uh, you know, I I feel. They are there, they are listening. There are moments where it's almost impossible to hear what I'm playing really with pianists really, really fine. Okay. And then and then they're listening and they give me this energy which later I can explode really. And that's super important to me. And a more intimate hall and rather than the 2000 places black hall where you see just yourself, more intimate hall where I can connect more with the people is mm-hmm. what I personally enjoy the most. Yes, well, it was a joy hearing you. It was a joy hearing you in an intimate setting, and uh, we sat in the first row, so I was maybe five or six feet from you. And you know, growing up with my father, Morton Estrin, hearing him um, as a concert pianist up close all the time, and whenever I'd go to concerts of his, it was like <laughs> so much less energy. I mean, when you're in the same room with a concert pianist or a concert violinist, the energy and intensity is so amazing. But getting back to this idea of what to do in a performance, how much to do is what you've practiced, and I sometimes liken it to a conversation. If you've ever had an important interview or something, you might rehearse in your mind everything you're going to say to the last detail, but then once you come to the actual conversation, or in this case, the performance, there is a give and take with the audience and certainly with the musicians you're playing with, so you can never really predict where it's going to go, and you can never recreate, even if you do the greatest performance you've ever done in your life, you can't then say, oh, that's the way I'm gonna play it, and it's never going to be the same. Not really, not really. (laughs) I think you can have the same, you can have idea, an idea of how you want to construct things, or generally, you know, here I want to be quieter, but the exact tone, the amount of vibrato, the the warmth in the in the bow that, that that you decide to give, or the exact tempi, which we can see, for example, in uh, speaking of pianist Mikhail Pletnyov, uh, mm-hmm. his, his his tempi are I heard in Verbier. All the Chopin preludes, nocturnes, Scriabin impromptu, and Beethoven concerto, and it was the most unbelievable wow. <laughs> concerts of my life. I think, 
I oh, learned fantastic. so much from that because because I've never heard such a pianissimo really mm-hmm. being played on the piano, like really nothing but still with quality. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like his tempi, when it takes time, how he plays the melody compared to bass, bass line. So his his timing is unbelievable. And I cannot believe that it's always the same. Indeed, right. it's impossible. And I think that's when when you become a great master like him, although I hate the word master in music, but when you when you're as good as Mikhail Plenyov, which almost mm-hmm. nobody is as good, <laughs> uh, then I think that's 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 what you do in a concert. You know, I heard that for example, he he is practicing um, uh, on you know on keyboards and mm-hmm. not on not on real pianos. I don't know this for a fact, but I heard this legend that he's playing on on keyboards because then he goes to the concert and he has the amount of experience that. You know, he thinks of a color and it comes. And so he can do whatever he wants. It's I call the stage, uh, usually, I call it when I get an eye hole. I say out loud to myself, okay, so this is my playground today. <laughs> That's a great attitude. I want to talk a little bit. Um, first, I want to let everybody hear a bit of your playing. And then I want to revisit the idea of the way players played in the early part of the 20th century compared to the playing styles today on violin, on piano, and all instruments. I think there's quite different. I think that's a, we'd have a lively discussion about that. But let's take a little break and hear some of your wonderful playing. Thank you. Wow, that was some magnificent playing there. And there's a lot more. We'll have links uh, here on livingpianos.com and YouTube in the description so you can hear more of Andrea's fabulous violin playing. Thank you so much. So the way instruments are played today is very, very different from what it was. You mentioned Heifetz and Milstein and the great uh, pianist of, of Hoffman, Levine, Rachmaninoff, Horowitz, and it seems that there was much more uh, creative diversity in performances then, which I attribute a great deal to technology. My generation grew up with recordings, and now everybody has everything right in their own pocket. You can hear every performance of everybody in the world at the click of a button. And I think to some extent that's made everybody play more alike. And I was wondering what your feeling is about that and if somebody goes out and plays with a kind of wildly creative expression that a, a Alfred Cortot on piano or some of the great violinists did, would it even be accepted today? What's your feeling about the general performance practices in the 21st century compared to earlier in the 20th century? I mean, it's that's a very interesting question. And I have, you know, I always <laughs> change my ideas on this because on the one hand, I love to, you know, pick up my phone 
and and I can listen to unlimited music, which is a also a gift for us young musicians to be able to listen to whatever we want, really. Uh, so you know, to take I don't know taking plenty of Beethoven third concerto, I can listen to it every day, just like this, uh, and then. I, I say, okay, but let's see how Richter played this. And then I go on and there is the recording. <laughs> so so on the one hand, that's wonderful. On the other hand, you mentioned the, the common problem. Uh, yeah, that's 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 something that surely is the effect. For example, if I if if you mentioned Rachmaninoff, uh, uh with Rachmaninoff, I always associate Fritz Kreisler, a legendary violinist, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which they even they even recorded together the Greek sonata that you you listened to me playing. I've, I've heard that performance, and of course, it's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, and and the way Chrysler plays it, it's just today people would you know would in the audience would look around like what is what is it? <laughs> but if you take maybe the second movement, which I'm the most fan of, I mean the tempi of Rachmaninoff, Chrysler's tone, vibrato. I mean, you have to get used to it, but it's. I think it's the best recording of the second mm -hmm. movie, yeah. which today in any competition you would be thrown out in the first round with something, <laughs> like um, which which is funny <laughs> because it was Chrysler. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so, uh, I really have mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. But when when I when I you know learned the second movement of the Greek sonata, big inspiration was from this recording actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, I tried to make it my own. I worked a lot with my teacher and and you know took ideas. And but generally, when I when I play a piece, actually, I don't really listen to recordings. I listen mm -hmm. to recordings before and after I'm playing it, uh, just because of the problem that you mentioned. So that's that's my my reason for myself. The only exception I made was in this second movement of Chrysler because. I just wanted to copy certain glissandos, really, <laughs> <laughs> because they were so amazing, and uh, and I tried, and yeah, yeah. What I do, I I purposely don't listen to any recordings until after I have a piece on performance level, and then I then I go crazy and I start listening to every single performance until I drive my wife crazy because <laughs> I'll listen to you know so many it's insane because I, yeah. I kind of get it's so interesting to hear how different people play a piece but I don't want to be influenced before I have my own convictions about it. You know, you know, an important thing that, uh, as you were mentioning in your generation, uh, you were buying CDs from people that you admired and you were spending money on it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was an effort to buy them for everyone. Uh, some were more accessible, some were less accessible. Uh, and so, of course, you would choose the great masters like Horowitz, Richter, Rachmaninoff, uh, whoever. In our case, and I think that's super important for young musicians, and that's just my humble opinion, is really to develop good taste. That's the most important, I think, because if you develop good taste, then you're able to listen to yourself in practice and decide, okay, this phrasing maybe is rather, you know, acceptable than this. I can just hear suddenly do a tone suddenly loud or whatever. <laughs> um, so good taste and listening to the old legends was more common because nowadays people click on the first uh, recording on Spotify and then listen 500 things and then they're confused <laughs> well uh, 
those days you just had you know the the really good recordings which you were buying of course the difference is which is also a pro point is people like me who are aspiring violinists i'm 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 happy if people listen to my recording and and that's something that in your days maybe it was less possible so there are pros and contras but from from the learning perspective i think the good taste development is the most sure for me you know, um, I, I just did a video recently about the two instruments everybody studies in music conservatory, which are piano and singing, you know, we, we, even if it's just sight singing or singing in the choir. So I was wondering what background you have in other instruments, piano specifically, and any other instruments uh, that you may have studied. Well, studied with teacher, I have studied not any other instrument, but in my free time, I'm, co I'm constantly on the piano. Uh, mostly, uh, I tried uh, a little bit of jazz, actually, uh -huh. uh, which which uh, it's just my 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 free time. I love to listen also to jazz recordings, and and when I have a a phrase in mind, it's for me it's really important to sing it or to play it on the piano because of the following thing: if I'm playing a piece and I am singing it, then I I don't care about technical issues. Because for myself, I don't really care about how I sing. It's just about I want to make clear to myself how is the how is the phrase, right? While on the violin, I think I'm making it clear, but I always care about intonation, uh, rhythmic, uh, how I put my fingers, or if there is a fast scale. You know, when I sing, I just ignore these things, and then I have a much more clear understanding of what I actually want to do. Take that and put that. Uh, apply it to my instrument. That's my 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 technique often. You know, uh, my daughter Jenny Estrin is a violinist and she plays with the Mozart players, the opera, the ballet, and all of that. But she also performs in you know fiddling and does songwriting and all of that. So I'm wondering how much crossover you do. You mentioned jazz. Do you do any jazz violin or other styles? I don't perform jazz for now, which is maybe who knows something that in my career can 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 still happen. When like take Friedrich Gulda talking about pianist. I mean, uh, after super many years in Carnegie Hall, Konzertverein Wien, or the biggest halls, he moved to America and and did jazz on what they said was an acceptable level uh, for the serious jazz community in America. I mean, that can always happen. Or or uh, with conducting, I'm, I'm really fascinated, really, really fascinated. But about jazz, I mean, Public performances I have not played, but in my free time, sometimes with my my, my father, for example, who who plays the piano not professionally, uh, we 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 do uh, certain pieces, jazz pieces together, improvised or with my friends. It's always a fun moment to spend time with. I tend not to do it too much, simply because. Uh, some technical aspects are really different in in jazz violin, and and I want to not uh, ruin <laughs> my my technical <laughs> preparation uh, for classical music. But you know, I think once every two three days I always play some some jazz for an hour. I do that always, and it's super important for me because we classical musicians tend to take music too seriously. 
uh, or not music, but you know their performance the, or how the oh there was like one wrong note oh like you know this this type type of thing, which which of course I have to do as well because I want to compete on high level and make the big career, but at the same time. I see music very, very different. I see it like like a game that is played. I was asked by Joel Bognar talking about him mm-hmm. in the Living the Classical Life episode that we just shot. He he asked me, you know, how how seriously do we have to take music? And and my my answer was actually that if my my goal is just to learn, and if I see children from zero to seven years old, how much they learn, but how not seriously they take it. That's what I, I'm inspired by, essentially. That's, uh, that's a very great observation. And it's the discovery and curiosity um, that makes it uh, to have a playfulness about it instead of such a seriousness. Not to mention the fact that so many people think of classical music as being serious music. And certainly there are some devastating you know, movements of Shostakovich or Mahler. But then again, there's playfulness in these composers as well. Uh, I mean, I think if you take a Mozart, it was just a game, really. Yes, I mean, exactly. The genius of all was just a game. And in some, I mean, I remember in one horn concerto, which he wrote for a friend, I don't remember right now which horn concerto, French horn concerto, but he even wrote a part where it uh, it makes it sound like the horn player messed up. And then, <laughs> and then it starts again, like he forgot the music. Well, you but know, the musical, you might be referring to the musical joke of, of Mozart that has mm-hmm. all those wrong notes in the horn, which is, it's classic. I, I'm actually a French hornist, so uh, I think that might be because I, I'm intimately familiar. I played all the Mozart horn concertos, but the musical joke uh, of, of Mozart is, if I think that you might be referring to that, which is, uh, I'll put a link to that in the description also, because it really is fun to listen to. Um, before you go, I just wanted to, to get an idea. I know you're from Italy, living in Germany, and I don't know how long you're in the United States. Tell us a bit about your immediate plans and what your long-term hopes are for your future with the violin and in life in general. Yeah, so as I said, uh, I, I come from Italy and I always go back to Italy, really, because I'm still in high school, so in, 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 in Germany, here I attend high school, in Munich, in Karlsruhe, which is four hours away, I have violin conservatory lessons, uh, and and yeah, I, mostly I play here, of course, uh, because just more people know me here, <laughs> uh, and uh, in America, I went now two times, uh, both to meet with Alexander Malate, the second meeting uh, to uh, be interviewed by Joel Bognar and have a wonderful discussion on living the classical life and to give two recitals in Cleveland, one you attended and one in Buffalo uh, with Alexander Malafayev. Uh, and so that, that's my experience in America, which which was which was wonderful. And then I was in New York later, which is just, a, a, you know, a big jungle and really exciting uh, for me. Uh, about my immediate plans, I'm now going to, from between... End of January and April, I have seven concerts with uh, Vivaldi Winter to perform, where I'm going to perform uh, the winter and uh, 
And then there is other other music uh, with ensemble to perform. And uh, accompanying me are members from Munich Philharmonic Orchestra, which is really nice. We did the same with Beethoven Concerto uh, once. And the most wonderful thing uh, about it, which is why I'm mentioning this exact event, actually, it's it's for children, um, children who who want to uh, listen to Munich uh, to, to music. They come with their parents, and they. You know, they, they 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 just listen and there are these fun interactions later with the children. And yet the music is on a really high level because, it, as I mentioned, the orchestra is Munich Philharmonic uh, members. So it's, it's just wonderful to make music on high level. But at the same time, keep in mind that this is for people who never heard maybe even the violin. Of course, adults are welcome too. Um, but we have this short tour in Bavaria, seven concerts, all for children with Heinrich Klug, ex-first first cellist of um, Munich Philharmonic, um, who can you imagine? He played Shostakovich cello concerto for Shostakovich in Moscow. Oh. <laughs> um, so he's a really great guy, really good friend. And yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. That's my immediate plan. Then uh, plans in the future, I mean, I hope to to do, apart from soloistic uh, uh, career, I hate the word actually, career, for soloistic performances, I hope to play a lot of more chamber music with colleagues like Alexander Malfeyev, or we decided to go also on tour with Joel Bognar, and there's a lot of, of things that are yet to come, and of course one day, uh, if we stick to America, Hopefully, uh, we will uh, attend another performance of mine in Carnegie Hall. That's the big that goal. Be fabulous. And I can tell you that um, I'm so glad to get to know you and look forward to hearing more of you. And perhaps we can perform together at some point as well, which would Absolutely. be a little joy. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering, since growing up in Europe, you know, and coming here to the U.S., I'm wondering if you find any qualitative difference between audiences here and the acceptance of classical music in the United States compared to in Europe, where uh, you grew up? Actually, I find quite big differences. Uh, I see that in the United States, for example, um, there's many pros and cons to this, but I think many classical musicians are also uh, doing more social media, for example or more uh, playing other types of music or, um, you know, being entertaining with other types of content, really, that is not music, which has great sides, for example, uh, that uh, it's more accessible for young people in America, I believe. Uh, on the other hand, one has to always watch out that it doesn't get completely away from classical music, because otherwise you're not making it more accessible, you're just changing the topic. <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's my perception of it. And also in America, it felt like everything is more possible. There is more opportunities once you're in a circle of people that want to help you. Since basically, I, I don't know if it's my perception, but I saw a lot works with donations uh, in America, which in Europe, it's almost not possible. So in Europe, it's through, uh, well, of course, manager, Paul, and then how is your career right now? And 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 this is what you're getting. While in America, if there's someone who believes in you, you're being pushed much further. Is my perception as a young young musician right now? Uh, on the other hand, I see places like Juilliard or um, you know CIM, let's say, 
um, and musical education, which are prices like $55,000 um, per year, which I could not afford. Uh, and here in Europe, we have a Vienna Conservatory, let's say, the biggest conservatory in the world, probably, uh, with incredible education and incredible names, teacher, big, big teachers, uh, really geniuses of music there, or or Mozarteum in Salzburg, which I'm paying in Karlsruhe with Josef Riesin, a legend of the violin. I'm playing $300 per semester. So in that sense, that's more accessible for young people. Yes. Uh, so that that's that's my my pros and cons about America. It's, it's gotcha. Really, really different ways. Right. Here, orchestras for the most part are supported by private donors. Where, Absolutely. You know, in Germany, for example, they're state sponsored. So yeah. there's a different uh, different business model for young artists. And yeah, I mean, if, if you take uh, 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 even, I mean, the budget that they have in America, it's just huge. I mean, you're in Cleveland right now, correct? That's right. And in, I heard, for example, a concert master in, in Cleveland, it can't get up to seven digits. I mean, the price <laughs> here. Yeah. Uh, while it, while in, in, in Munich, it's much, much lower because it's from the state, of course. And that has also pros and cons because one can fall down really quickly from private donors, but it's more and one it's... In America, even the streets are bigger. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is bigger in America. And it looks like you can dream more forward in America, which in some cases it's true. Sometimes you have to watch out to what are you actually saying yes to. <laughs> but in Europe, it's, or especially in Germany, I can talk because I don't know much about the business in Italy. I know a little bit, but in Germany, it's much more you know, structured, I think, like Germans generally. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're different cultures. Anyway, I wish you great success in your budding career and look forward to keeping in touch with you. And I want to thank you for visiting here. Uh, and everybody, you can check out more of Andrea. There'll be links below. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time here on livingpianos.com. Thanks again, Andrea. Thank you so much, Robert, for having me on your incredible channel and it's a it's a great opportunity for me to share my stories i hope some of them were interesting and i look forward to doing this again discussing some other com uh, topics uh, uh, and and we will see each other next time which will be soon where i come to cleveland very soon sounds great well take care and see you all next time here on livingpianos.com